I'm back, bitches. He is truly back. Welcome back. What, I don't, I don't what, want to be here. What a beautiful suntan you've got from your trip in the yeah, tropics. Man, the fucking Factor 50 sorted me right out. Still looking as porcelain skin until the day I left. That is ridiculous. <laughs> I don't actually think you were there. Which makes me wonder what you were doing. Like, see, right, I have a tanned arm because I, I just, just one arm. go outside. Dave has a tanned <laughs> arm because he just drove 10 minutes across town. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then the underarm of my arm is very pale because it never sees the sun. And I would say that your top arm is about the same colour as my underarm. Mm. That's true, yeah. It's just, it's, just, it's a sad indictment. I, 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 I don't actually think you did go where you said you went. I take the protection against gun cancer very seriously, Chris. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so by, tell not, us, by not going to countries with sun <laughs> By not going outside Going to countries with sun But not going outside So tell us about your road trip It Mark. was pretty good man uh, Make it quick though cause I'll make it really quick uh, I met a guy in a pub In a, in a, a small city called Franklin, Tennessee uh-huh. I, I think you to, find they're called bars over there Oh well uh, It was actually a venue called uh, Kimbrough's Picking Parlour And there it was in the most middle class town I've ever been to In the whole of America One of the things that I noticed When I was in America Especially in the cities that I was in Is like a lot of poverty Is basically black people. There was no black people in this town. I've never heard that mentioned. That's true. Uh, and yeah, I met this guy in a pub and uh, we got really drunk and we he invited us to go around to his house and shoot some guns, which we did the next day. And he was a totally lovely chap. So we could have died, we could have got murdered, but we remain unmurdered to this day. Yeah, you're more likely to have committed suicide, to be fair, yeah. than to have been murdered. That's kind of more the issue behind well, If it. a guy asked you to come around to his house in the middle of fucking nowhere to shoot some guns and... You know, it's, it seems he, like a red flag. Hey, I'm all, I'm all for living that yes man life. That's what Just I did. Yeah. Do <laughs> what you will. I mean, the, the, the fortunately, the, the chances are, especially if he is a nice guy, he is way more likely to kill himself. So yeah, than anyone else. So it's fine. Well, it's I can't say thought. that. I'd, I, one, I totally get guns now, only because the fact that he, <laughs> that was hard. <laughs> he was saying like one of the things has one me, go on a gun, which, which was which was was really interesting. Like, look, everybody out here has got a gun, so. If I'm going to, if I need to protect my property, I'm going to have to have a No, gun. it doesn't um, make sense. It doesn't what? make sense because he is still statistically far more likely to either kill his kids accidentally yeah, or no kids. kill himself. He, he's not going to kill himself. Uh, he takes gun, takes right. guns. He you guys completely, completely misinterpret statistics. It's not about somebody breaking into your house and shooting you with guns in America. If they're there, it's because your children or someone else picks them up. You're more likely to die yeah, as a uh, yeah, result. Yeah, but of you the understand there. the primal fear that people yeah, I mean, have because other people have guns, I'm and not, that's why. I understand I, that. Yeah, I'm not wrong. saying that. I, I'm not yeah. saying that. I like that. I would. I think all guns should be banned. I think what we've got in the UK is a very, very good system and should continue to remain the way it is. Um, but. No, but if, if you're living in a situation where but, somebody else has got a weapon, like, but that's the point. it makes sense no, in my head as to why you'd want to arm yourself. This is the point, though. This is why this problem is so bad, is because it doesn't make sense. If you're no, be, if no, you're but being rational, pe- it's emotional. It's not rational. Yeah, that's exactly so it. it do- but, but what makes sense sense is that it is emotional. But the point is, emotionally, you can understand the line of thinking, but statistically, it doesn't make sense. They are not safer. They're less safe by having the gun in their hands. They feel safer, so I guess that makes sense. To <laughs> but, but they're not. <laughs> like, who, am I, who am I? See, I don't want a gun and I live in Britain, so it's uh, fine. It's such a frustrating conversation. Like, j- Yeah, just because you were exposed to the emotional reaction of somebody that thinks it makes it safer and doesn't want to acknowledge the statistics on it doesn't actually mean that it makes any more sense. I don't mean a pacifist anyway. However, apparently I am very, very good with a handgun. Apparently I'm a natural. I didn't know this, but there you go. I had 17 shots and I had the target 15 times in the centre. Well, there you are. So, Let's go to the 
Moy Game Fair. Yeah. I think that's in a couple of weeks. We'll go up. Do another do thing I found really interesting, which, which is also totally frightening about, uh, also fired an AR-15 assault rifle, which mm-hmm. is what was used in Sandy Hook, among various others, uh, various other sort of skill shootings. And I shot a 9mm Beretta, right? And it's got a fair amount of kick on it. This AR-15 has less kick on it than a Beretta, and it's so easy to fire. It's actually scary. Like, holding it and shooting it was like, oh my God. I was expecting it to be this big, powerful thing, and it totally is, you know, mechanically. Yeah. In terms of, like, gauge, everything that it does as a weapon is horrendous, but it is just, a, literally a child could fire it, and it's, that's fucking terrifying. Absolutely, Absolutely terrifying. and they often do. Yeah. And it's therefore fundamentally irresponsible that the guy actually owns it. There is no reason to own that weapon other than to show off to visitors and to risk the lives of the people around you. Maybe maybe we can get him on the podcast and, and we can talk about this. I mean, that's just stupid. I just don't get it at all. <laughs> uh, it really does like piss me off, though. I mean, it, it, it's just really, really stupid. It's a totally needless thing to exist, let alone to have. From what I could see, most of the people that, yeah, and particularly in Nashville, I wasn't really paying attention to Atlanta, although it's probably the same in Atlanta because Atlanta's quite a fractious place, fractitious place, shall fractious, we say? I believe. Um, uh, a lot of people are concealed carrying mm-hmm. in, in, in Nashville. You can see it. You know, underneath our t-shirts or whatever, it's a reality, and it's pretty frightening mm-hmm. to know that you AIDS could, is a reality as well. Yeah. But we we did something about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we did something about the guns in Scotland as well, and Britain as well. So you know, yeah, so but, I think you know, we're winning in that. In some that, in that some people just don't want to do something about it. Well, there's a lot of vested interest in America, as we know, and that goes without saying, right? Because the they're is a thing. They're right to go in their back garden and show off to fucking easily impressed Scottish strangers. Outweighs the rights of kids not to accidentally blow their own faces off. I, I mean, it's just it's fucking madness. America is a mad place. It's like it's like being in an alternate reality. That's what I felt. It's the first time I've ever been to America, and it's like it's like being in a place which is really familiar, but shifted ever so slightly to the left. Yeah, it's also nostalgic right, you know? because you've grown up in so much pop culture yeah. that is American, so you recognise the road signs, you recognise the the diner fonts, all mm-hmm. these things, but then. You're in a very foreign country. Definitely. And just because yeah. they speak mm. English and, you know, you've grown up in the culture doesn't mean you belong there at all. It is a weird place. Yeah. After I mean, we left Memphis, we, before we went to Franklin, we stayed in overnight in a, in a farm outside of a, a small town called Selmar. And it was just like a wee stop off for us because it was like a long drive between Memphis and Nashville. And it turned out where we were staying was a farm on what was what is an intentionally built Christian community, which apparently there are quite a lot of in the South. This couple like started this community in 1999 after being after like traveling about in RVs for like 20 odd years and just going, gee, the southern states just aren't religious enough for me. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> you know what? Like, you know, this place could this do place it. is missing some <laughs> Bibles and some churches. Like, they didn't. This is far too tall. One thing that I thought was really interesting is the guy, the guy, the, one of the first things like we went, we it's an Airbnb, so we didn't think we were going to interact with them at all. And I went out to get pizza at Domino's because there was fucking nowhere nearby at all to get food, so we're like, cool. Came back in and they started talking to us, like, do you want to come to that in, in our dining room? Do you want to have some beers and stuff? So we're like, yeah, cool. So we sat chatting to them and just, like, sharing usual cultural, like, oh, this is so different, that's so different, blah, blah, blah. And then the first thing it goes, one of the things he says, like, so what do you guys think of Trump? And we all just looked at each other and we're like, uh, what do you think? And he's like, I can't believe that guy's president of our country. And we're like, oh, thank, thank God. God. <laughs> and then he started talking about how, like... He only really sort of briefly mentioned the fact it was an intentionally about Christian community. He didn't mention religion other than that. Like aside from that, that was the only t- only time it was mentioned. We spoke about politics for ages. He couldn't believe Boris Johnson was an actual person. He just thought it was made up because <laughs> he seems so fucking improbable as a human being. 
But yeah, that was enlightening. But definitely a cult. You know, Def- what, definitely a cult. You know, it would have been amazing if the rapture had happened and you hadn't had to pay for the B and B. Yeah, <laughs> it would have been great. Just you left. walked out, you were like, ah, oh, they're fucking gone. Yes, excellent. But the intentional community aspect of it, definitely a cult. I don't think all cults could be bad, right? Some some might be quite affable, but yeah, definitely a cult. Yeah, cult. That's healthy yeah. for your <laughs> uh, digestive system. Uh, seen lots of cool stuff as well, which I can talk about in our time. <laughs> so does that mean we can uh, look forward to instalments from your road trip? Well, I can. T- oh, I'd love that. Can we just have a little feature at the beginning? Of every- yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds good to me. Did you get yourself thrown out of the country by ice, by any chance? That would have been a nice little uh, thing to tick off. Uh, no, but I did get thrown out an Irish pub for swearing. Well, oh my God. <laughs> so what? there you go. That doesn't make sense. What did you say? Did you just sing "God Save the Queen"? No, so we were having, a, we were having a, had a few beers. Said, you know? Oh no, he said "fuck the Pope." That's what it was. <laughs> I actually just said the word "fuck." It's a family establishment. Can you please not use that language? We'll have to ask you to leave. I mean, I will. Mark, good yeah. job. I'm glad you had a nice time, and I'm glad you got back safe. I had a good time. Um, it was interesting that this week. I wish you'd actually still been there to take a kind of straw poll for us. After Trump came away with those tweets about the four congresswomen, which, in my opinion, marks like a new low in terms of his like brazenness with with, with the racism, because I know he said things that were obviously racist, but there was there always was, like they a, were, it was, was a subtext. There was a back door yeah. out. There was always yeah, like yeah. a kind of like the birtherism thing, you know, all of that. There's always been like a way for him to weasel out of it or yeah. ame- ameliorate it. This time there was none. It was just like, and then he doubled down and made it even worse. So it was really like just head on. You know, he is a racist. It's not even something that Fox can spin now, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I was really fascinated to see the reaction, though, of American friends here who literally are inured to it now. Mm-hmm. I'm like, guys, this is this is different. And they're like, it's not different. I'm like, no, it is. And they're like, nah, we're so sick of it. It's just, it's always something. I'm like, but this is different. And you're trying to say, you need to still care about this. And they really didn't. It's not that they didn't care. They cared. But they were like, oh, it's just more of the same. I'm like, it's not more of the same. It's actually... This is a substantial departure. This is like a kind of head-on. I actually think it was a miscalculation rather than like, they were like, oh, yeah, it's a trial balloon. He's testing people's reactions. I don't think so. Someone made the point that they think this Jeffrey Epstein thing actually has him embroiled a little bit more than he's comfortable with Mm. and that this was maybe a sort of panic-induced miscalculation on his part. But regardless of whether that was the case or not, it was really fascinating. And I would have loved to have known how that went down in America on the ground, uh, given the kind of puzzling reactions and indifference of the, my friends who are American. I think uh, one of the things that I found quite interesting is that although I was in all red states, all the cities I was in were all blue. Because mm. cities tend of to course, be, Of right? course, yeah, yeah. That, um, that is, and that's that, that huge divide. And that's why the gerrymandering is such mm-hmm. a big issue as well. Because the cities always win, but if they only win one region, they can gerrymander the other states in such a way as they end up losing the state. Yeah. But a lot of people I spoke to in Atlanta had like no fucking time for Trump, man. Especially the members of the black community. You know, they were like, what the fuck is well, this fuck, man. I mean, what the fuck is this is, guy all about? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Wow, this week, in terms of his support now, it'll be like that one guy that they keep wheeling out, that one crackpot that they keep wheeling out his rallies. Mm-hmm. He'll be the only one. Last mm-hmm. last black man standing for Trump. Interesting thing, on an interesting point in the Trump thing you were, you were talking about there, um, you know Twitter have recently changed the rules on like what happens to people who, who spout hateful nonsense, Yeah, you can they, they can now like sort of put grey boxes in front of them so you need to click through to see what they're saying, uh-huh. they're not denying Trump. 
even though they should for what he said. Well, and tra- according to their policies, that's probably a bit of a trade-off though, because this week they also passed a rule in America that says he can no longer block anybody, mm-hmm. which means he's got to unblock Stephen King. Oh really? Yeah. Mm. He's 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 democratically forbidden from blocking anybody. Everybody must be able to access every single yeah. or American citizen. Sorry, must be able to access everything he says. He can't use the block function on Twitter whatsoever. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. And he's obviously bitching and moaning about that. Yeah. Also, I was in Tennessee. I was leaving Tennessee actually when that fucking senator, the governor, passed that bill talking about that. What was the one? The Ku Klux Klan guy, the Grand Master. Now look at the big thing in America about like honouring historical figures. Mm-hmm. And one of the first yeah. guys who was one of the first Grand Masters of the Ku Klux Klan in the Civil War, like there's been a bill passed uh, in Tennessee to sort of recognise this guy's name and give him like a like a oh yeah either, yeah. either a day or a street or something. It's like the that. same with the monuments mm-hmm. and the, the the university monuments especially. Well, this is, this in is general Lee yeah. and people like the that. N- yeah. Nathan Bedford Forest Day. Yeah. Which is actually so This is so abhorrent That Ted Cruz came out And said no that's wrong I mean how fucking wrong Have you got to be If Ted Cruz comes out And says don't do that That's like Yeah Pretty fucking Out there yeah. It's like Ultron Skeletor <laughs> Ted Cruz Came out against it Yeah that's That's fucking bad So yeah uh, As David says We're going to stay On that side of the Atlantic And we are going to discuss One of the Seminal American bands Of The last 30 Odd years, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Sonic Youth. Yep. Sonic Which Youth. I can tell that you guys have no fucking idea about. Well, I think what we've got today is a lesson from Mr. Chris Cusack <laughs> to two uh, Sonic Youth. Yeah. Yeah, we just That's don't. generous. Can um, I just say? <laughs> grand, 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 grand fact, because as you know, I've done a playlist for this episode and I had to call it Sonic 30-somethings because I couldn't, with a straight face, call it Sonic Youths. Yeah, yeah that's true. Mm. We, I mean, we are babies in terms of uh, Sonic Youth knowledge, though, even if we aren't babies in the eyes of our good Lord. So, um, yeah, I've I've never... I think I said in a previous episode I, I got Sonic Youth Daydream Nation out on CD from Inverness Library when I was about 13 or 14. It was a good choice. and But it just never caught with me. Mm. And funnily enough, I think what it did catch with me was uh, the Brown album by Primus. <laughs> <laughs> and you can tell that that's where I was at that stage of my life, age 14. Uh, I thought uh, Primus were a lot more interesting than Sonic Youth. It's because they had the song called Winona's Big Brown Beaver. Well, it's a classic. on that album though. but uh, yeah I just somehow they've bypassed me for the last 15 years I've never picked up on them I'll occasionally hear them in a car fully enough my fiance Amy has a few songs on playlists that she puts on and I always really enjoy them but yeah they're just it's a weird one uh, they are just one of the most sort of influential bands of the last 35 years in yeah, alternative they, they music abso- they really are and I know for a fact that I will listen to music that's influenced by them oh, hugely I mean you're a big mm-hmm. Mogwai fan and yeah Mogwai very, Slint very few bands took Trail more of, of an Dead, influence than Mogwai uh, you know Idlewild all these bands yeah um, Mark what about you well I, I kind of I got Daydream Nation at the same time I was getting into lots of other kind of 
80s kind of punk, but it was more kind of like, you know, Fugazi, when I threw that kind of vibe, that kind of time. And all, when I was getting to music of that kind of era, I was learning to, learning to do stuff that wasn't obviously grungy, because I'd obviously yeah. listened to quite a lot of that. Um, and Daydream Nation was just horrible to me. I just didn't enjoy it at that time. So I just ignored them ever since. And to echo what Dave is saying, a lot of bands that I like are also inspired by Sonic Youth, like the guitar work, the lead guitar work, especially a lot of the melodies, a lot of punk bands that I like, you can definitely hear Sonic Youth influence in them too. Um, I th- I th- yeah, they're, as you said, um, they are not grungy, overtly, mm-hmm. but a bit like Butthole Surfers, and we spoke about this in the previous episode with them, they're kind of grunge adjacent. So they were a band that was really picked up in the big grunge wave even though they were like the progenitors of it well we were just watching that tour video of them on tour with Nirvana in 1991 it's a film from 91 called The Year Punk Broke and it's them on tour with Nirvana for a couple of weeks in in Europe and it's it's a kind of cult film amongst followers of that even though it's kind of shit to be honest with you but um, yeah they they were they were very much in the periphery of that they helped create that really Mm. Um, but then it also boosted their profile beyond the kind of art rock scene. I think they were kind of classed in with Pixies and stuff, but then that that huge publicity surge that accompanied Nirvana especially really rubbed off in Sonic Youth, whom, you know, they've been touring with and stuff. Well, to uh, those that are ignorant, man, like Sonic Youth are a grunge band because they're all from in the same sentence, even though Sonic they're not. Like, there are bands like yeah. Sonic Youth and Bulls, like you say, so, like, that are considered grunge because they were around then. And big, even though sonically and Pixies as well are often called a grunge band because of the Nirvana effect. Yeah, I mean, even though they're definitely not. Sonic Youth are a lot of things. They're an experimental rock band. They're an alt rock band. They're mm. noise rock. They're art rock. They're indie. They're post punk. They're no wave, which is like a really <sighs> no wave Im- implies a sort of a almost like a sense of self awareness that I think is really relevant to them as a band because a lot of what they do they deliberately do to subvert what you maybe expect them to do mm-hmm. or what you expect their peers to do and that's how they kind of that gives them that kind of like intellectual aloofness that I'll kind of mention later on People of the world, sorry to disturb you. Spice up your life. It's not really very cool. And I know it's not really very cool for us Generation Xers to be asking for money or whatever, man. You know, but like, whatever. You know, because this podcast or whatever's got to like... Yeah, man. Pay the man. Yeah, man. You know, I don't really want to bust your head about this but you know if you could like you know maybe just go to like the website of unsungpod.net and there's like a forward slash and then donate yeah and I, I don't know man I don't want to neg all over you but maybe just like put some money in it you know if that's not too much trouble it would like totally maybe make this worth it or something yeah man we'd like seriously appreciate it and stuff or whatever yeah yeah man
nailing my colours to the mast. I am not a massive Sonic Youth fan. I never was a massive Sonic Youth fan. And I've mentioned in the past about how I initially struggled to get into Jesus Lizard to the extent I'd taken back what, what would have been a really expensive limited edition record that I had. Sonic Youth were similar, uh, and I have liked Jesus Lizard come back to them and got a lot more out of it, but not nearly to the same extent. Uh, where Jesus Lizard are one of my favourite bands, Sonic Youth, I'm like, okay, I was wrong, but not as wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, Their back catalogue is, at times, extremely patchy. Um, it's really uh, inconsistent. Mm-hmm. It has some very, very pronounced highs, definitely. Uh, Daydream Nation, I would argue, is clearly one of them. It's almost always voted as their best record overall. Um, and there are a couple others, and I'm not going to do an exhaustive album thing because they've got about 17 full releases. But I will kind of brush past some of their records. But we should mention what record we're doing today. Yeah, but I've nominated rather ripped. Mm-hmm. which is their 2006 penultimate album and is close to bottom on a lot of the polls. Uh, it's definitely almost always in the last third of their records from what I could find out. The, the reason behind that consensus seems to be that it's actually too commercial and too accessible for Sonic Youth. Sonic Youth became synonymous with difficulty and esotericism and you know avant-garde and Rather Ripped's actually a great record. It's a really accessible, well-structured record. Slightly overlong, but um, very, very well put together, especially for them. A, a kind of like super quick tour of the band. It's basically the, the definitive Sonic Youth lineup is Kim Gordon, Thurston Moore, Lee Ronaldo, and Steve Shelley on drums. Shelley wasn't the original drummer. It was a guy called Richard Edson who played on, I believe, the Sonic Youth EP. which is actually quite underrated as an EP. It's the very first thing they did. Uh, he was replaced by Bob Burt, who did Kill Your Idols EP, who was then replaced by a guy called Jim Sklavunos, I think you pronounce it, who did the Confusion is Sex record, which was released with Kill Your Idols tagged on. And then Bob Burt came back and did Bad Moon Rising, which is a pretty famous Sonic Youth cover with a scarecrow in the front uh, that was released in 1985. When that came out, Burt had already left Sonic Youth and Steve Shelley had joined and actually they're both in the video for uh, Death Valley 69 the the track that the band did with Lydia Lynch um, they had a keyboard player for about two years on and off but the only other person who was a regular feature was Jim O'Rourke mm-hmm. the producer uh, who's worked with loads of people especially famous for his work with Wilco I always thought 
thought that if I held you tightly, you would always love me like you did back then. Uh, Jim Wrook joined in 99 and left and I think 2005 just prior to the album that we're covering being written and, and recorded and I think it's actually a big part of it because the band have said that Jim Wrook's departure led to this album being far more straight ahead and far more normal than certainly the ones prior to it, Sonic Nurse and Murray Street and New York City Ghosts and Flowers had been and I think that worked in its favour to be honest because they're a very opaque band at the best of times and this kind of unmuddied the waters a wee bit um, Kim uh, Gordon and Thurston Moore were quite famously married and are no longer married and that seems to have been a big part of why the band are not really uh, a band anymore they had been a duo I mean they they dabbled in other bands prior I'm not going to go into the prehistory of it but they'd been a duo and they'd seen Lee Ronaldo playing uh, with Glenn Branca as part of a guitar orchestra and had approached him and asked him to join and then they played for a while as a trio where they were all just taking turns on drums. And you can kind of imagine the kind of ramshackle nonsense that would have been. But they did that for quite some time. Uh, and then Glenn Branca signed them. Uh, they were the first act that he signed to his record label Neutral in December of 1981. And that's where they released that first Sonic Youth EP. Uh, there's a couple of like little bits of trivia. They, they, they shared the rehearsal space with Swans. For a long time, which kind of, you know, fits with their image. Um, they signed to Greg Ginn's label, SST, in mm. 1986. Uh, SST had done stuff with, like, obviously Big Black, but um, Minutemen, Soundgarden, Dinosaur Jr., Meat Puppets, Husker Du. These are all bands you kind of associate with Sonic mm. Youth anyway. Um, but it was Husker Du that led me to Sonic Youth. Yeah, well, absolutely. They, they name-check them all the time. It's sonically quite similar uh, in, in a lot of places, especially like the New Day Rising album, which is just so cacophonous and abrasive and stuff. They've got a lot in common with that. I think signing the SST plays in to something that became really key to Sonic Youth later on and I want to touch on it and it's simply the notion of cool, right? And uh, SST is one of those labels that helped lay the groundwork for the alternative movement. It, it, it was like a badge of cool and alongside I think like a touch and go, discord, uh, twin tone, sub pop, maybe epitaph, it really prepared the scene for this movement, this, this reaction to the 1980s sort of uh, Reaganite, capitalist, hair metal, early. You gonna see Kiss tonight, Chris? Oh, fucking wish. <laughs> I'm in here with you losers instead. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna get made up though afterwards when you go and do my ironing in full yeah, uh, Peter good. Chris makeup. Carry on, Reaganite yeah. rock music. <laughs> um, and then building upon the legacy of those kind of labels were were the likes of things like Kill Rock Stars. Uh, that that kind of plays a big part in the mythology of Sonic Youth because they are just part of this super cool Generation X, Douglas Copeland type movement against, we don't even know what, we're just against something, the slacker movement, the kind of, that weird, disaffected youth uh, of the late 1980s and early 90s that went on to become Nirvana and then went on to be commodified and by 92, 93 was just being sold back to people. 
And I think Sonic Youth play a part in that as well, that selling it back to people. In terms of the records, I don't want to, like, like you say, I'm not going to be too meticulous, but Daydream Nation is generally agreed on as being their best, I think. It's got Silver Rocket. Teenage Riot, Eric's Trip. Um, the Guardian did a poll of Sonic Youth fans years ago where people just voted for all of their albums and percentage-wise, 34% voted for Daydream Nation and that was more than, it was almost three times the closest. It was voted Pitchfork's number one album in the 1980s, which I think says as much about Pitchfork as it does about the album itself. It was the first Sonic Youth album in the list of best of our albums and Sputnik Music. And then on the likes of stereo gum and stuff, it tends to come second or third. But even then, sometimes it seem like they're trying pretty hard to do that just to be different. Uh, another one that's really highly rated and actually came 14th in the best albums in the 1980s in Pitchfork was Sister, which is, what was that, 1987. And it's kind of the hip choice, I think. It was 13% it got in that Guardian poll and finished second. Uh, it was first in Stereo Gums list and kind of second, third, and a few others. A track in it called Tough Gnarls, pretty fucking cool. But I think the album overall is pretty overrated. I think there's a lot of nostalgia and a lot of that kind of people being deliberately obtuse. Um, 1990s Goo, I think, is a better record than that. That was the first one they did on Geffen and has that really iconic cover. Which has since been Taylor Swifted and Cat oh, and everything. It's, it's one of the... That is the thing. Like, they, it's one of the most iconic covers of that era, probably of any era, and, you know, yeah. it's really, really easily identifiable. It's got to be one of the most successful bit of merchandise ever as well. Richard um, Pettibon did that. What? I'm sure Pettibon designed that who did who's the brawler of um, Greg Ginn from Black Flag and SST mm-hmm. yeah there you go uh, that's got the track Cool Thing on it which is a huge anthem for them it's also fucking toe curlingly embarrassing when uh, Chuck D does his appearance in that song, did you listen to that? Uh, Weird. Yes. So, so strange. it's so literally strange. like someone handed them a sampler with a kind of almost mildly racist rap trope mm-hmm. uh, sample button kit, and it's just like, yeah, yeah, whoa, tell it. Yeah. Odd. Really it's odd. so fucking cringeworthy. Um, Dirty Boots, first track in that, is pretty good. The album generally starts off pretty straightforward and gets a little bit weirder as it goes, but it's, it's a good record. It's a good way to get into the band. Um, Evil in 1986 was the first one they'd done with Shelley. Uh, that's got a closing track called Expressway to Your Skull that Neil Young thought was a classic. It's got a track in it called Star Power.
it's pretty good. Uh, a little bit tough for repeated listens. For me, I would suggest to people if they want to listen to a full album, I mean, the big one for a lot of people was Dirty, which came out in 92, has like a famous kind of like little mm-hmm. puppet thing in the front. It's just a really big, nostalgic 90s teenage album. Uh, Butch Vig produced it, obviously, post Nevermind. Uh, it's also the one that came out after that year punk broke tour, so the, the associations with Nirvana are pretty big. They were getting a lot of interest off of that. Uh, Drunken Butterfly, uh, Sugarcane on that are pretty well known. Wish Fulfillment is fucking brilliant and a candidate for maybe their best song. Does see, it seems like with some people they don't want to put that album too high on lists it's almost uncool to put it on it's that Sonic Youth thing of cool kind of doubling back on them and people are like oh I don't want to say Dirty because you know it's too popular I don't want to say that one it'd be too obvious a choice but it's a fucking really good album albeit it has some mad shit in it towards the end things like Nick Fit and stuff like that that again Sonic Youth being Sonic Youth they could have done something that was just a killer album and they decided now we're going to muddy it up but you know, they know their fan base, they know their fan base likes that. The likes of Murray Street feature pretty high in those lists. I, I, I don't really rate it. Washing Machine feature pretty high. And generally speaking, I think that's a pretty unremarkable album. But the final track in it, which is like this 20 minute epic called Diamond Sea, is really good. And when you listen to Diamond Sea, you hear Mogwai, uh, you hear Trail of Dead, uh, you even hear like stuff like Silver Sun Pickups and Parquet Court and stuff like that. Uh, you really hear a lot of stuff coming through in that song, mm-hmm. mainly because it's so fucking long. Like yeah. They go into the instrumental decay thing, you know, it's like, oh, there's a verse and then we've got like six minutes of instrumental falling apart. It's a bit like the likes of Cinnamon Girl and by, uh, Down by the River by Neil Young and stuff where it goes into these huge extrapolated breakdowns like television with Marky Moon as well but it's much more anti-rock than those um, as I said first EP I think is slightly underrated Sonic Nurse I really struggle to remember anything about Sonic Nurse and I've listened to that album maybe 10 times and I still can't remember anything from it um, New York City Ghosts and Flowers is a significant album for them it's not a great album not even a particularly good album but just prior to that they had had all of their stuff stolen uh, which included like a lifetime's collection of like customized guitars and and bits and bobs that they had used and integrated into their set and their sound, and it all just went. And they had to almost start from scratch. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a big watershed for the band. I think as a result, the album's pretty unremarkable. They did start to pick up again after it, but, you know, what are you going to do? So, I think it, the kind of thing about Sonic Youth is they've got a really patchy back catalogue, in my opinion, like I said. They symbolise um, cacophony. They symbolise experimentation. They symbolise bravery, I think, with a lot of what they did. You know, they, they broadened the horizons for a lot of people that came after them. There's no arguing with that. And even if the results were sometimes questionable they were at least kind of as we've said before kind of like kicking open the 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 doors of where people could go 
and then people were maybe taking that in slightly better directions. Like I would say that some of what Mogwai did on Young Team owes a lot to Sonic Youth, but maybe was slightly better realised melodically and, mm-hmm. you know, but they, they contributed to that. It's, it's Trail of Dead especially are really, really took a lot from Sonic Youth. And again, I feel they took a lot of these ideas and possibilities, especially around the Madonna era, and then used them in much more um, disciplined and constructive ways. Well, uh, yeah, that's certainly something that I found with Sonic Youth was that they tried so many different things, which is really courageous as an artist. And that's part of their joys that you can go in and try and find, you know, bits that you like and go, oh, holy fuck. But yeah, you're right, because they never concentrated on one thing. You know, even if you do compare them to, I don't know, like Nirvana, we were watching that. Nirvana just wrote pop songs, taking the chaos of that, you know, sort of similar thing. But Kirk Bain was like, no, I want to write pop songs uh, that are angry and aggressive and then you know Slinter Mogwai have gone oh I want to make really beautiful you know things happen out of this and stuff like that and yet whereas Sonic Youth were just like fuck it let's just play about and the f- the finished product isn't necessarily the actual finished product the finished product is then taken further by other artists yeah, which is really it, interesting it's very unrefined I agree and I think like you said Nirvana are a good example because like Cobain in particular was really, really inspired by Sonic Youth, um, even before Nirvana was Nirvana. And he sort of took the he took he sort of took the shroud of Sonic Youth, like the cacophony and the the, mm-hmm. the imprecision and, you know, the feedback and even going out of tuning, deliberately detuning and all this kind of things, which by the way is called scordatura, where you play deliberately out of tune. Mm-hmm. No thanks for you. Um but he took that shroud, but he threw it over a much more carefully considered and prominent architecture of verses and choruses and melodies. Whereas Sonic Youth, when you strip the sound away, the underlying songs aren't always there. Like, yeah. It's much more style as opposed to content. And I think the likes of Nirvana used that to a much better effect um, because they had just considered the strength of the basic songs, that kind of, you know... It's a cliche, but Beatles-esque yeah, totally. writing. Mm-hmm. But then let's deliver it in a way that is reminiscent of Sonic Youth, is reminiscent of Dinosaur Jr., is reminiscent of even Led Zeppelin at points. You know, just that much bigger sound. Um, and that that's what's lacking on some of Sonic Youth's weaker stuff, is, yeah, people get really excited in the delivery, and I can see why. And when you watch them live, it's much more exciting. I went down to London to see Sonic Youth live, and it was really, really interesting to watch because it's very, it's very felt. It's very mm-hmm. much a, a live art performance, um, but I don't think as a result of the weakness of songs, it always translates well on record. Which is interesting, which leads on interestingly to why this record, be- and I've struggled to contextualise this album in terms of Sonic Youth and then also Sonic Youth in terms of music, because to me, I'm listening to this album for the first time 13 years after it came out. And they, it's their 14th album. They've been a band for 20 years when they released this record. 25. Uh, 25, yeah. You know, they formed in the 80s, early 80s. So they are a band, 14 albums into their career, who are, who are they being influenced by bands that they have influenced? I don't know, probably not. But this album in 2006 was clearly slightly out of time because uh, bands like Mogwai and, you know, thousands of indie bands have been influenced by Sonic Youth and then t- 
taken their own sort of slant on it, whereas Sonic Youth are still doing Sonic Youth and then they've maybe stripped it back. So I've just, I've just found it, I found it really weird to go, right, I'm looking at this album 13 years later and it was 14 albums into a career which was so transformative for many other artists. It's kind of piles of influences upon influences and we're... <laughs> It's really weird for me. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think it's interesting. To, I don't know if it's a factor, but there must always be the temptation when you're in a band like that to look at these young whippersnappers doing it and be like, you know, we can still do it better. Yeah. And yeah, then, because yeah. this album doesn't come out of nowhere, like it does trace its influences back to especially moments in Daydream Nation and things like that. And I'll, I'll mm. kind of pull that apart later on. But they've already shown they can write structured songs with beautiful delicacy things like Candle and things like that and this is like really a collection of those kind of songs, it's like they've decided to do an album that really represents this entire side of their band and it, I think as a result it met with hostility because people were like what are you selling out, are you making an easy listening album it's a straightforward Sonic Youth record basically. yeah but it's, the thing is it's not an easy listening album it's still challenging, it's still, it's just in comparison to other stuff they've done, it's, yeah. it's much more accessible Um so I suppose we'll have to talk about is it their unsung album and yeah I suppose we'll cover that as we talk about it because you know are there any unsung there probably are unsung uh, Sonic Youth records there's a few yeah Um, but I think what's interesting is because this place is for example so low in those kind of poles mm -hmm. that's really fascinating because what that highlights to me is that issue of cool and that issue of expectation which I think is a huge part of it yeah yeah Sonic Sonic Youth is is propped up by notions of cool I think it's backfired I think it backfires on them for a lot of people as well I mean certainly for me me and David it certainly has you you guys are really struggling with the notion of cool Um, I understand (laughs) no like it's just that's this idea of like I don't know like the, the reverse side of Sonic Youth is they're also responsible for some bands which are full of absolute hipster wank up your pitchfork fodder do you know what I mean and oh, it comes directly undoubtedly. from this they, they, I mean there is almost no other band that the art scene the art rock scene has been more inspired by than Sonic Youth and mm. and whenever you go and see a band that's had two practices and there's someone rolling about in the floor howling into a microphone and someone playing drums with a, some bit, a, a bit of cutlery <laughs> yeah it's it's almost always somebody that's really heavily into evil mm. or something like that yeah. um, I get that and but in some ways that's really liberating they did liberate these people and a lot of these people go on to be in much more structured bands and some of them don't and some of it it's good that it's out there um, what I think's fascinating is their tussle with that very ambiguous notion of cool right so I mean they came out in New York that alone in America can sometimes be a bit like oh big shots I um, they were really heavily into the, the beat movement that's obvious that kind of post Andy Warhol vibe oh, yeah. they're huge Velvet Underground fans There is no getting away from that at any point in their mm-hmm. career. Um, they draw upon people like the Stooges at a lot of points, uh, Glenn Branca, Patti Smith, uh, Wire, which is a big influence on Sonic Youth that I think gets overlooked. Public Image Limited, uh, even people like Joni Mitchell who gets like name checked on Hey Joni. Also, they I don't know how much they took from it and how much they gave to it, but anti-rock bands like uh, US Maple, who I don't know if you've ever listened to, but oh my god, it's fucking out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's brilliant at times, but it's absolutely out there. Mm-hmm. 
And so they're doing all this like really crazy, unfussy, atonal, deliberately detuned, playing their guitars with screwdrivers and wooden spoons. And in in some ways that's fucking, that's amazing. You know, in some ways that's really exciting and really liberating. But I think like my beef is when, as you said, the art school hipsterism starts to create a lot of eye rolls. It's like they're a frustrating band to be into. They're a band that was capable of great songs and capable of great ideas, but I think they definitely, to some extent, believed their own hype. And I think the cool factor that they acquired, you know, being name-checked everywhere in the early 90s, and and still, to some extent, um, has kind of fostered this idea that maybe anything that falls out their arse onto a two-inch tape is somehow genius. I was going to say that, like Sonic Youth started to become Sonic Youth, do you know what I mean? They started to believe that Sonic Youth was who exactly who they were and they had to do the most Sonic Youth thing yeah. people expected them to do. And I also think there was like a lack of quality control as a result. They were like, how can we not be good for Sonic Youth? Mm-hmm. And when you're so roundly praised by people who want to be seen to be cool, if you've acquired cool and mm-hmm. people want to be seen to be cool by liking what's cool, uh, they're therefore just, you know, constantly praising this thing that's actually, as I said, at least 50% pretty fucking average to bad. Who is actually forcing you to check the quality of your product if you're not forcing yourself anymore because everything you do gets a round of applause? We've spoken about this before, though. When bands start to get on and they start to create more, they start to exist for longer and they start to create a, a bigger back catalogue, it often goes out the window, like quality control and... Fat discussions about how we think that sometimes sometimes be a good thing, or you know, can be liberating for the artist, or sometimes that's a bad thing. It's like, why didn't you just stop? Why didn't you just do something else? I think it's an interesting dichotomy, depending on the band and the artist and where they sit in the sphere of influence and coolness and all that. Yeah, I mean, you know, they they're they're completely kept alive by the Emperor's New Clothes thing as well. You know, when Sonic Youth bring out a record, if it was any other band bringing it out as their debut album, so New York City Ghosts and Flowers, for example, if that was just some random band bringing that out. Like in fact, I can tell you categorically, dozens of bands just from Scotland will bring out records every bit as good as that this year. Uh, even like art rock bands working on a budget of almost zero will bring out great records that will not meet like any sort of comparable level of reception that that does purely because it's Sonic Youth. There's no kind of objective standard by which it's judged. It's all judged by oh my god, it's Sonic Youth. Everybody, Emperor's New Clothes. You know, and nobody wants to be the one to break with that orthodoxy. Yeah. What is hilarious though uh, is when that album came out, it got zero point zero from Pitchfork, which is but in its which is a meta it's review a, exactly. in itself. It's cool eating itself because yeah. it, it's it's so perverse. Yeah, exactly. You know? um, of course it did. <laughs> yeah. I think as well. Also, the people that then don't get Sonic Youth, and it, I'm I'm classing you guys a little bit in with this, and I'm classing myself to some extent as well. The people that don't get it and then hear this stuff, start to resent them. You're like, what the fuck is the deal with this stupid fucking band that are making these songs that go nowhere mm-hmm. and are just like really basic howling feedback because you're listening to... And yeah, people are fucking into them all the time. Yeah, and you're just, get, you're just getting pissed off at this band. Like, why are you so big? Mm-hmm. And so therefore you actually end up, rather than be more receptive, you're less receptive to the stuff by them that's really good. You know, so you actually feel less inclined to be sympathetic to it, less inclined to look for it, because you're just like, why the fuck is this average as fuck album, which is the third in a row average as fuck album they've done or whatever, Mm -hmm. getting so much attention? Fuck this band. And it does build up a resentment 
which further widens that divide between the cool kids who get it and the people that, oh, you just you just don't get it. And I think that's a really fascinating phenomenon. We're cool in general because mm-hmm. it's such a fickle thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. How do you define cool? Because for me, if something genuinely is cool and it's not like just seen to be cool, I think... It's got to be effortless. It can't be trying to be cool. That's the thing that's at odds here, isn't it? It's like, is what is the royal cool? Like, the, you know, the, the overarching, you know, sphere of what is deemed cool by the public at large. And then it's what you think is cool. Yeah. You know, and, and Pitchfork is like an, the exam- arbiter an of example cool of one of the... Still. One of the yeah. But it's, n- it's not. But we can, <laughs> as, you know, fucking p- skeptic p- Scottish folk can go, ah, oh, actually, Pitchfork's one. But a lot of people, like we've spoken about it before, we speak, we'll probably speak about it so many more times as well. If people go to Pitchfork, we'll see that fucking eight-star review for, like, some fucking guy hitting a fucking washboard with a fucking ladle or whatever, and, go, and they'll be like, oh, fuck, this guy's amazing. Pitchfork said it was so good. But seriously, Pitchfork yeah. is a site that is in a Promethean battle with the notion of cool mm-hmm. for yeah. all eternity, because it, it relies on it. It yeah. absolutely relies on it, and things like that—that that review that you're talking about—are just the perfect example. Because that's a statement. That's not a fucking an exercise in journalism or any kind of serious criticism. It's just a fucking statement. That's them seeing who they are. It's yeah, not, it's yeah, not them exactly. telling anybody else. Oh, we don't like Sonic Youth anymore. We're actually better than that now because yeah. it's 2000. It's like, oh please, Sonic Youth, whatever. 